Okay, we are going to look in, in three portions. We're going to start in Mark chapter 10, verse 32. And we are entering into the last week of Jesus' life. This is about eight days before Jesus is, is, is going to be crucified. And he is on the opposite side of the Jordan that Israel is, Israel is today. He's on the Jordanian side, which Jordan wasn't there at the time, but he was on the east side of the Jordan. So he had left, and, and the Sanhedrin was, was very much after him to condemn him to death. He, was, he had gone up into the Galilee. He came back down the east side of the Jordan Valley, and he is still on the east side of the Jordan Valley. And then in verse 32, we're going to pick it up. And this portion is spoken about in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We're going to read in Mark chapter 10, verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside, and he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles." They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. So this is about the fourth time that Jesus is speaking prophetically about his death to his disciples. But this is clearly the... the uh, uh, he's giving the most detail about how his death is going to occur. So it says, they were on the road going up to Jerusalem... And Jesus was walking on ahead of them. So Jesus was ahead of them. They didn't want to go to Jerusalem. They knew that that what awaited Jesus in Jerusalem was a Sanhedrin, meaning 70 of the the, uh, uh, ruling class, along with the high priest being the 71st of them, that were going to come after Jesus. They didn't want to go. So Jesus is going and he's walking on ahead of them and they're kind of dragging on behind him, it says. He's walking on ahead of them up to Jerusalem. And it says, and they were amazed. Well, why would they be amazed? They've gone to Jerusalem many times. What's so amazing about going to Jerusalem? That's like saying, I'm amazed at uh, going to downtown Houston. Uh, Nothing amazing about that. We've been there hundreds of times. What's so amazing about that? Well, what's so amazing is that he's going right into the, 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 the lion's mouth. He's going right into this group of people that is is ready to condemn him. And it says, and those who followed were fearful. This is in Mark chapter 10, verse 32. They were afraid. They were clearly afraid. They didn't want to go. And again, so now he takes the twelve aside and he begins to talk to them. He says he began to tell them what was going to happen to him. So look at what he says. There, was, there were no surprises for Jesus. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn Him to death, and will hand Him over to the Gentiles. So He says clearly, the Son of Man, Son of Man is the way that Jesus primarily referred to Himself as the Son of Man. He says, the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death. So in other words, there is going to be a trial. As kangaroo as that trial was, and we're going to see what it was like. But he says there's going to be a trial and they're going to condemn him to death. 
So they will condemn him to death. But, he says, they will then hand him over to the Gentiles. And it says, now, what will the Gentiles do to him? He says, they will mock him, they will spit on him, and they will scourge him, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. I mean, look at what he says, each phase of what's going to happen to him. So if you say, look what the Jews did to Jesus, well, look what the Gentiles did to Jesus. We're all guilty of what was done to Jesus, both the Jews and the Gentiles. The Jews condemned him to death, didn't kill him, handed him over to the Gentiles. The Gentiles spit on him, the Gentiles uh, 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 mocked him, the Gentiles scourged him, meaning where they shredded his body with these whips that have bone and, and, and metal in it. And, uh, uh, and then they, will, uh, they scourged him and they will kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Look how clear it is. Now let's read the same portion, the, the, the same portion in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 20, Matthew chapter 20, verse 17. So three of the gospel writers record the same insta- instance, but each one leaves us with something uh, 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 new to think about. Matthew chapter, chapter 20, verse 17. And as Jesus was about to go up to Jerusalem, he took the twelve aside by themselves on the way, and he said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him, and on the third day he will rise up. So what we see in verse 19 is he talks about how he is to die, he says they will crucify him. And Mark just reported that they would kill him. Matthew records that when Jesus was saying that they would kill him, he even went to say they would crucify him. Even the method of the death that he was to die, Jesus said, and Matthew recorded that. So these are different people listening to what Jesus said, and each one is pulling out slightly different points. When you hear somebody describe a situation, and then you hear someone else describe the exact same situation, the words are never exactly the same. Each person pulls out of it a little bit different things of what they heard. Matthew records exactly how he's going to die, and that's by crucifixion. Lots of ways to kill people. Jesus said, not only is he going to be killed, but he would die by crucifixion. So let's let's look at... Look now in Luke and see what Luke has to say about all this. In Luke chapter 18, verse 31. So, in Luke's gospel, remember Luke was, was uh, a physician. Luke was not one of the twelve. Luke was a gospel writer, but he interviewed people and then took that. Took that testimony and compiled it all together. And so, so in Luke chapter 18, verse 31, it says, Then he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. So what Luke pulls out of this is that he sees that Luke, Luke now is giving an account and says of him that everything that has been written is going to be accomplished. Everything that was written about him is going to be accomplished. So you see that what's here. Jesus said, this is all in line with prophecy. Nothing's happening to me that's surprising me. I know exactly how I'm going to die. 
I know exactly that there's going to be this trial with the Jews. They're going to condemn me to death. They're going to be turned over to the Gentiles. They're going to spit on me. They're going to mock me. They're going to uh, scourge me. And then they're going to crucify me. And he says, here in Luke, what he pulls out is, all of this is according to what has been written. It's all prophesied. This is not catching Jesus by surprise. It's not catching the Father by surprise. It's not catching the prophets by surprise. It's been written. Jesus said, it's been written, so it will happen. When people tell me, you know, such and such is going to happen, I said, no, that's not how the world is going to end. The world doesn't, it doesn't end that way. You know, the word about this or the word about that. No, the Bible is very clear about what will happen. People say, are you worried about your daughter living in Jerusalem? I said, no, I'm not. I'd be more worried about her living in downtown Houston than I would with her in Jerusalem. The Bible says that he is going to meet his beloved in Jerusalem. So I'm not worried about Jerusalem getting wiped off the face of the map. It's not going to happen. Jesus, it says, he's, when he comes back, he's going to meet his disciples in Jerusalem. So there's going to have to be a city there. You know, Jerusalem, uh, he, Houston might get wiped off the map, but not Jerusalem. Well, how do I know? Because it's so written. This is what he says, it's written. Then he goes on in in Luke chapter 18, verse 32. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles. He will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they will scourge him, they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise again. So in each of the three accounts, he speaks about his resurrection as well. And he knows that it's going to be three days. And in fact, he says, he says, uh, um, and, and the third day he will rise again. The third day, he will rise again. In, in Mark, it said, three days later, he will rise ad- again. Jesus died on a Friday, and he was raised on a Sunday. We know that Jesus rose up on the first day of the week. We know that he was killed on the Passover. It was a high Passover day. It was, the, it, it was a Friday on which was also the Passover. So it was the high Passover Passover can occur on, on, uh, on different days. The Shabbat, the Sabbath, occurs on Friday. It was this high Sabbath where Passover was occurring on a Friday. Jesus died on a Friday, a little bit of that Friday. Saturday started at 6 p.m. for the next day. He was in the grave on Saturday, and as soon as it touched Sunday morning, he rose from the grave. He was not in the grave for three 24-hour periods. But it says... Sometimes the Bible says after three days. Sometimes it says on the third day. And these two terms are used synonymously throughout the Bible. You will see with Esther, talks about pray for three days. And it says on the third day. Well, how could it be on the third day if you were praying for three days and a day is, has to be 24 hours? In our Western logic, a day is 24 hours. In their Eastern logic, if it touched any part of a day, it was part of that day. And so it, he says, that's why it says in one gospel, it says, he says, and three days later, here it says, and on the third day. And it says he will rise again. But here's an interesting thing that Luke pulls out in Luke 18.34. But the disciples understood none of these things. And the meaning of this statement was hidden from them. And they did not comprehend the things that were said. Three times in one verse, he makes it clear to us that they didn't know what was going on. In case once wasn't enough for us to realize that they didn't 
understand what was going on? Luke underscores it three times in one sentence. Look what he says in verse 34. But the disciples understood none of these things. That should be sufficient for us. Then Luke says again, and the meaning of this statement was hidden from them. And then he goes on to say, and they did not comprehend the things that were said. Could the man have been more explicit? They didn't understand. It was hidden from them. This was not clear. This happens all the time to us. Professor stands up there lecturing, says something very clearly. It's just like, you never said that. I just said it. You're asking me the question? You mean, you mean what I just said? This happens in life, not just with the Word of God, not just with God speaking, it happens in life all the time. Ask Shireen. How many times she has to say something? She says, I told you this. I said, you never told me this. I told you this. I don't remember. And just, it's gone. You know, but I'm in good company. I mean, the disciples were like this. They just never got it. Just, it's just, Jesus told them specifically how he was going to die. But it took them by surprise. Jesus, you never told us this. That you were going to be condemned? Wow, we're shocked. That they were going to, you know, scourge you? Wow, what a surprise. Did you die? And, and then three days later, you know, Mary comes back and says, He's risen. Come on. You don't believe that. They didn't believe anything. Jesus was very clear to them. But they didn't understand. They didn't get it. So, so how did these guys write these Gospels? So Jesus also told them what was going to occur. Back in John chapter 14, verse 26, it says, But the Helper, meaning the Holy Spirit, But the Helper, the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So it was after Jesus rose from the dead, after the, the day of Pentecost, which was, which was actually not the first Pentecost. The first Pentecost. Pentecost means 50 days after the Passover. The first Pentecost happened when Moses was, was, was up on that mountain. That's what happened on the first Pentecost. Fifty days after they took the Passover, Moses was up on a mountain receiving the the Word of God, the Scriptures, and the children of Israel were down dancing around an idol. That was the first day of Pentecost. That first day of Pentecost, thousands died because of their disobedience. The next time of Pentecost, it says thousands lived because of their, their obedience to the Gospel. Thousands were saved. That was the second Pentecost, On that second Pentecost, that 50 days after the Passover celebration, the Holy Spirit fell upon them. That, when the Holy Spirit fell upon them, that instance caused them to remember all the things that Jesus had spoken to them. It was like, He hit them to say, Now I understand. Now I get it. And you see this with, with, with believers. I tried. I did as an unbeliever, to read the Word of God when I was in high school. And I tried, and I, this is crazy, I don't understand this. Nothing here. When I got saved, and the Holy Spirit filled my life, the Word of God came alive. And every year it comes more alive. I love the Scriptures. When I hear the Scriptures, I just stop. I mean, just the Scriptures just stop me in my tracks. Because I love this Word. You know, I, I, I turn on the Scriptures in my car. I have it on my iPhone, I Bluetooth it into the car, and I just play. And I just love to listen to the Scriptures being read. I love the Word of God. 
what happens is unbelievers are like, what do you, what's with your fascination with this book? All right, read it and be done with it. You don't understand. There's life here. And the more you do it, the more you will have a love for it. There are things that are said that we don't understand. And then, all of a sudden, I've been reading this book for 35 years. Every day of my life, I've read this book. But then the next time through, I'm like, wow, I never saw this before. You'd think, you, you, you would think that I would have gotten it the last time through. I didn't. God reveals more. That's what He does with this book. Okay, so, so let's, let's read on. So let's turn back to Mark chapter 10. Let's turn back to Mark chapter 10. And Mark chapter 10 and Luke chapter 18 follow along the next event that occurs. Luke doesn't report it, but Mark and... and uh, I'm sorry. Um, uh, Mark and Matthew do in Matthew chapter 20. And the, the next thing that happens is James and John come up to him. So if you read Mark chapter 10 verse 35. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher... We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you shall drink. And you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right hand, or on my left, that is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So this underscores that the disciples were clueless about what Jesus was talking about. When he's going up to Jerusalem, they think that he's about to set up his kingdom, the messianic kingdom. He's not setting it up now. He's going to die. It would have been set up had the Jewish leadership accepted him. But on that day, when the unpardonable sin came, he changed the whole thing around because of the rejection of him. The leadership rejection of of Jesus, when they saw him saying that he had been demon-possessed, on that basis, the unpardonable sin came. The unpardonable sin is not something that you and I can fall into. We can't. Because we don't see Jesus physically. We don't reject Him on the basis of being demon-possessed. And we are not the leadership of Israel. So we can't do it. But since that day, He brought in, He ushered in something new. We are in the church age, and this is going to end, and He will come at some point and set up His kingdom. But that's what they think. And so they say, uh, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And Jesus says, uh... Why don't you just ask it first and then we'll decide what you're going to do. And they said, when you come, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. So this is James and John coming to him. So this is James and John, the two sons of Zebedee. So James and John were brothers. And that's how we know that the twelve disciples were not from the twelve different tribes because there were three sets of brothers among them. Couldn't have been twelve different tribes. And, and uh, uh, James and John were Jesus' first cousins. Their mother was Salome. Salome was Mary, the Virgin Mary, that Mary. Jesus is Mary, the mother of Jesus. Salome was her sister. So James and John are his first cousins. And they're like, hey, homeboy, you know, put, us, put us on your left and your right. We're, 
You know, we're tight. We kind of grew up together. You know, this is just put us on your right and your left. You know, because we've got, we got something going between us more than these other ten guys here. And uh, they thought Jesus was going to establish His kingdom and set up His glory. And they, you see, what they wanted was your glory. Put me on your left and your, put us on your left and your right in your glory. And Jesus said, can you drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said, yes. Can you be baptized with the baptism that I'll be baptized? They said, yes. This is the cup of suffering and the baptism of suffering. And they were both going to go through it. James was the first of the apostles to be killed. Judas killed himself. James was not the first disciple to be killed. Stephen was. But James was the first of these twelve to be killed. John was the only one of the twelve not to be killed. John was the only one that went throughout his normal life. But he was banished to the island of Patmos suffering for that. That's where he wrote the book of Revelation. He also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And, and uh, uh, John was the only one who returned to the foot of the cross, where Jesus said to Mary, Behold your son. He was the only one of the twelve that returned to the foot of the cross, so he did not have to prove his allegiance to Jesus. The other ones all had fled and never came back, and so they had to prove their allegiance to Jesus, and they were all killed for, for their faith. But this is the James and John we're talking about. If we look in Matthew, in Matthew chapter um, 20, 20, verse 20, you can read the same account, but it says in Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making request of him. And he said to her, What do you wish? And she said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. And But Jesus said to her, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said to him, We are able. He said to them, My cup you shall drink, but to sit on my right and my left, that is not mine to give, but it is only for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. So you see, in Matthew's account, he says, He points out that Salome was with them. In Mark's account, he's just pointing out what James and John were saying. Matthew's account, he's saying, by the way, Salome was with them, and Salome made the initial request, and the three of them came bowing down to Jesus. This is the aunt of Jesus. This is Jesus' aunt, Salome, is coming with the two sons and bowing down, showing the respect that they ought to give. And then then, uh, uh, she is the initial one to make request. We know from Mark, they too made request. I'm from a Jewish family. I understand this. This is Jewish motherhood. Go. Go ahead. So she, no, Mom, it's hard to do this. I can't ask him for this. So she goes up and she says, Jesus, you're my nephew. Remember my two sons in your glory. One on the right and one on the left. Okay? Just, and then Jesus starts this conversation with the two guys. And the guys say, yes, we, we want this. We want to be one on your right and one on your left. This is how these two stories merge together. And, you know, this is the Jewish mother. She's sticking them in the back. You know, pulling them by the ear. Come on, you're going to do this. Jesus said, if you don't ask, you don't receive. Let's ask. Let's ask. And so she's pushing them up. You know, one's a doctor, one's a lawyer, and they're going to go forward. This is what we're going to do. And the three of them were there. But he says, first of all, you don't get the glory, he says, 
by asking for it. That's not the way this sort of glory works. You get this glory differently. It has to be prepared for my Father. And there has to be suffering involved. You want to be great in God's kingdom? You have to be willing to take the cup of suffering. And then he goes on. So now, now let's, look, look, uh, uh, let's look back in Mark and then we'll continue the story again. In verse 41, Mark verse, chapter 10, verse 41. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, can you imagine? Here's James and John trying to get you know, the two best seats on Jesus' right and left, and the other ten are like, look, what's with those guys? Just because they're his cousins? I mean, we walked with Jesus just like they did. So it says, they began to feel indignant. That means upset over some unrighteous act. Something that they deemed to be unrighteous. So that the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. What's with you guys? You even have your mothers here? What are we, chop liver? I mean, you guys are going to reign with Jesus? What's going on here? Jesus now begins to tell them something. He calls them to himself and he says, You know... Those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. This is the world's way. The world's way is this. Rulers, they lord it over other people. They exercise authority over other people. That's what greatness is in the world. Oh, look how great the man is. He's in charge of so many other people. Look how great and powerful that woman is. She's in charge of so many. That has, Jesus has no regard for that. That's not the way His kingdom works. Not at all. That's not the way His kingdom works. He says in verse 43, But it is not this way among you. Dominance over another is never the way of the gospel. Never the way of the gospel. It is service that makes it work. It is not dominance one over another. We talked about this in respect to marriage. It is not dominance, the man over his, uh, over his wife. It is not. It is service. Will he serve his wife? That is what it always is. That is the way the gospel is. He says, in the world, granted, Gentiles do that. They lord it over others. Great men, they lord it over others. In my kingdom, this is the way it works. He says, But it is not that way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. It is service to the point of death. That is what makes greatness in God's kingdom. You want to be great in your marriage? You want to be a great husband? Serve your wife. You want to be a great wife? Serve your husband. So that your best interest what is, is, is to do what's in the other's best interest. 
That is the best thing for a marriage. You want your marriage to last? Make a marriage where you are looking for the other's best interest. And then your marriage will last. Be selfish and it won't. It will be a miserable marriage. You'll be miserable, they'll be miserable. It is giving one to the other. It is the same in the kingdom of God. You want to be great, it comes by service. I have watched people's lives. This is what I do. I just observe people. And, and I don't have to be a prophet. I'm not a prophet. I just look at data points. And I look at what happens with people's lives when they are certain ways. I knew a young man in college. This young man used to serve quietly. He would go and he would, he would, uh, he would go mop floors in the church facilities at night. There were no janitor services. He would go move out all the chairs and mop the floor. He would buy the supplies, go mop the floor, and then when it would dry, he would move back in all the chairs. Nobody even knew it. They'd just come in and... No, they never even knew it. But this kid used to do this. This was just a regular college guy. It wasn't like he was graduating and he had all sorts of time because once you graduate, then you, you have all sorts of time. But no... He was a college student, and he was doing this. He used to go and set up the, the, the church, because the church met in the university facilities on a Sunday morning. Well, Saturday nights, it was a disaster, because the, the, the cleaning staff for the, for the university didn't come in until early Monday morning. But early Sunday morning, the church was using the facilities on campus, because, because uh, uh, the chaplain for the campus, was also the pastor of this little campus church. And so what, what happened was he would go and he would go and he would set this up in the mornings. He would set it up and he would, he would clean out all the chairs and set, set up this place. It was a disaster. And he would move out all the chairs again and mop it. This wasn't the church facilities. This was just the university facilities. He'd mop it and then he'd put the chairs back. And all the other students would come in. They'd roll out of bed at the last nanosecond they could possibly roll out of bed in order to get to church. That's what all the other students did. But this guy was going early and we'd get the place all cleaned up and nobody ever knew it. It wasn't like he put a sign on the board, I cleaned this. And no. And not, all the students just felt, oh, well, you know... Must be janitors in the morning for the university that cleaned up this place. And I watched this guy's life. And at each turn, how much blessing there was on this guy's life. I have seen this where people give of themselves and they become great in God's kingdom. They give of themselves for others. It doesn't come by prayer. You think, oh God, make me great in your kingdom. Make me great. Jesus said, no, it, it doesn't come by prayer. It comes by service to others. That's how greatness in His kingdom comes. Not, you pray for others and their greatness and you'll get it. It's not praying for your own greatness that's going to make you great in the kingdom of heaven. If you are taking your time to pray for others' greatness, that is an act of service on behalf of another. That will make you great. That will make you great. You, know, you fill out these, these prayer requests on these sheets and we pray for you during the week. There's many people that take these sheets and pray for you. And I've seen on this sheet, uh, pray that, be, uh, that I become great. Thinking, that's not how you become great. It's not by somebody praying for you that you become great that's going to make you great. It's going to become by your service. By your service. And it's service to the point of death. Well, you know, I'll, I'll do my own dishes. 
They can do theirs. That's fine. You'll be nothing in the kingdom of heaven. Because you've just done that for yourself. It's when you do the dishes for others. It's when you pick up after another. I saw a guy here, and, and uh, he has a very high position in the world. You know, we've got a bunch of COO, CEOs in our church. A bunch of them. This is a guy, he has a very high position. The leaves were falling off the trees, and people were coming in, and leaves had blown in <clears throat> because of the ventilation system. They had blown in all over the floor. And there were like, I don't know, 40 or 50 leaves on the floor. This guy was bending down and picking up the leaves inside the church just to make the hallway nice. Where people walk in. Most people just walk in. They don't even see it. Here's a guy in his position wants it to look nice for the body of Christ. It's not like, oh, that's below me. If you have a feeling that that's below you, you're not getting what Jesus is talking about. You just don't get it. It's not below you to pick up leaves from the ground so that other people can walk in and have a nice clean hallway. It's not below you. Jesus gave of Himself for us. He says, you want the demonstration? Just like the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for many. And it comes service to the point of death. Well, I'll do that, but I'm I'm not going to go that far. Okay, well then you don't get it. You just don't get it. In His kingdom, greatness comes by service to others. He says, those who serve will be the greatest, and those who be, and he says, and whoever wishes to be first shall be slave of all. In other words, you really want to be lifted up in God's kingdom? It comes by serving another. I'll tell you the other thing about servants. Is that the servants are generally happy people. They're generally happy people. Those that keep everything for themselves. You would think that if I just do everything for myself, then I'd be really happy. If you just think of this as the world would make it, then I'd be really happy because I got everything I want. It's all for myself. It's just the opposite. Those are the least happy people in the world who are selfishly getting just for themselves. The happiest people are the people that are doing things for another. You take the guys that help cook the meals that, that you eat here, the breakfasts and the lunches. Those who serve are the happiest people. You can go in the kitchen and see those who are serving the most. They're the ones who are just rejoicing. They're the ones who are happy. The ones who are serving are happy. That's totally opposite to what the, what the world would teach you. The world would teach you to get it for yourself and then you'll be happy because now you got what you wanted. No, it'll never make you happy. It will never make you happy. It is service on behalf of another that will make you happy. So when you have that opportunity, go and serve, and then you will understand. Because that's the way the kingdom of God works. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, for the truth of your word. I pray thee, O Lord, that you would so work and move in these young people, that you would place within them a heart of service toward another, and that they would see themselves then rising up in the kingdom of God as they serve others. Father, I pray for your grace to abound, your grace to abound on their lives. Father, I pray that you'd cause them to see the truth of your word, and that through that you'd also bring contentment and joy in their lives. I pray your blessings to be upon them. In the name of Jesus. Amen.